1: Hey, everyone. Welcome to the 29th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, uh, bring you into our world of the financial markets and financial planning. So
2: good morning to you, Matt. Good morning, Mark. I got my Starbucks here from Nick and Peggy and it's our usual people we see there, and I am just jazzed for the day, man. I'm ready. Yeah,
1: yeah, a little chillier today. It's We've actually been pretty blessed with uh, some warm weather, but it's nice to have a nice warm cup of joe here uh, to get the morning kicked off Yes, on the chilly morning. Um, as always, we'll start and just take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and year of the major indexes that we track, and these numbers are as of the market close on January 15th, and the data is from stockcharts.com. So the S&P 500 index is up 1.81% for the year. The Dow up 1.72% for the year. The NASDAQ up 3.19% to start the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 is up 1.03%. The international index X united States is up 0.56%, and the three-month T-bill currently yielding 1.57%, the two-year treasury yielding 1.56%, and the 10-year treasury yielding 1.79%. So uh, we've kind of rolled right into 2020, Matt, with the continued rise in the markets here as we sit near 52-week highs. Um, you know, from the strong finish to
2: 2019. Yes, we are. You know, and uh, volatility, at least for the short term, has remained pretty low. Mm -hmm. It has. Um, So
1: things that were in the news and headlines that kind of caught our eye this week, uh, like we just mentioned, um, volatility remains low and stocks continue to stair step higher, Um, after putting the U.S.-Iran conflict um, behind us. um, That continues to de-escalate. And then just yesterday, Matt, we had the U.S. and China signing uh, phase one of the trade deal that has been talked about for so long now. So long. (laughs) Since Trump has taken office, really. So that um, obviously, I think, was priced into the market. So that's why we didn't see that big of a move. I would agree. Um, You know, Possibility that it didn't get done. We could have seen a larger move, but I think that was largely largely priced in. um, You know that that was pretty much a done deal. I would agree. Uh, Friday there was an interesting uh, jobs report um, that came in at one hundred forty five thousand new jobs, which was slightly below estimates for one hundred and sixty thousand. And for the first time, Matt, the number of women in the workforce exceeded men by one hundred and nine thousand. That's a big step. Yeah, that's big pretty step. cool. Yeah, very cool. Uh, unemployment remained uh, stable at 3.5%, which is a 50-year low. And the positive job growth over the past 10 years, uh, in our view, continues to provide optimism for economic growth in 2020. Um, you know, I think if you look at the past, it's hard to uh, think that we're going to go through tough times if we have an unemployment
2: rate rate this low, right? That's right. I mean, again, I've said it multiple times, you got two thirds of our economy here in the US driven by the consumer. If the consumer is employed with wages going up, and overall inflation is still kind of subdued in that 2% range. That's a good recipe. It is a good recipe. Yeah.
1: And um, I was reading an article again, I couldn't I read so many articles, I can't keep them all straight. um, It was talking about you know, um, things in 2019 that should have brought the market down. Right. It was all these known risks and it's typically what bring Mark, what brings markets down are unknown risks is the stuff that you're not thinking about. Exactly. Um, you know, there was a good article written, um, by some of the guys at Rit Holtz wealth management out of New York. And, you know, they listed out all of the things that could have taken the market down in, uh, You know, 2019, but here we are when we still stayed invested, and look, we ended up, you know, 30 percent on the S and P 500. So um, I think it's a lot of the unknown risks that people aren't talking about or paying attention to um, that really tend to bring the market to relative to what everyone is talking about every day in the news, such as
2: U.S. China trade, right? Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. You know, in my view. I like when the market is climbing a wall of worry, mm-hmm. right? So when you have those concerns that are out there, in my view, that allows the market to price those in, and when they um, the risk goes down or they dissipate, that allows the market to move higher, right? Right. So you know, at the end of the day, if there were no or limited concerns or no concerns. That would be a top for the market. All the money would be off the sidelines. We would hit peak price at that point from a supply and demand standpoint. You know, so I like the market climbing a wall of worry. And, you know, we're still in that with a lot of things, especially the presidential election. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um. Some other things that were going on in the headlines, Matt, Um, the UK House of Commons approved the Brexit withdrawal agreement, um, which heads to the House of Lords next week. And the bill covers terms, including customs and payments to the European Union from the UK. And the UK is set to leave the EU on January 31st, um, followed by an 11 month transition period. So uh, the long-awaited Brexit is is upon us now. Just glad to get that headline out of the way. Out of the way. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, Q4 earnings season. We just started uh, with reports from the major banks coming in this week, and so far, so good earnings. Yeah, so far, they've been, to be generally
2: speaking, they're beating on pretty the Pretty strong, yeah. yeah.
1: Um, I think it was actually record profits for J.P. Morgan when they reported earlier this this year so. Um, you know, strong banking industry kind of indicates a strong economy, in my opinion. So strong consumer, um, hopefully the strong earnings season continues uh, throughout the next couple of weeks. So do you want to talk about some things that caught your eye, Matt? I know
2: we each have a couple things here, so I'll yeah. let you start this week. Yeah, I'll dig in. So uh, listeners, first thing that caught my eye this week was a note from U.S. Global Investors. They had a research piece uh, from January 10th, Mark, and they were discussing the U.S. dollar and its current weakness. This is their quote. Our view is that the dollar is ready to decline in 2020 and will be encouraged to do so as negative interest rates abroad turn less negative while the Fed holds pat or cuts. In the event of an unlikely recession in 2020, U.S. fiscal and monetary policy will turn sharply expansionary the dollar will decline further, end quote. Now, the reason I bring this up is as I've mentioned in previous podcasts, a weaker dollar helps multinational companies. Mm-hmm. So a strong dollar is a headwind for their earnings overseas. So just throwing out there a potential positive that I'm not seeing a lot of people talk about is if the dollar hangs steady or even declines from here, that could be a tailwind for some of these multinational companies. Yeah. And that's what I wanted to throw out there. Yeah. And we um, will put this chart in the show notes.
1: Uh, So again, if you go to jessupwealthmanagement.com, click on the podcast tab in
2: show notes, you'll see this chart that Matt is referencing here. Thank you, Mark. The next one I got is from Bespoke, big fans of Bespoke uh, Investment Research. They had a note that looked at similar rallies in the S&P 500 going back to 1928 that we have experienced lately. And to be specific, Mark, there have been 24 prior periods since 1928 where we've had some short-term, what we would call overbought readings from a 50-day trading period with no similar readings in the previous six months. So it's, in essence, indicating a breakout to the upside. Right. Okay? So in these other 24 periods, the reason I'm bringing this to listeners' attention is I think there's a perception that uh, the the market's made its high. It's got to go down from here.
1: Oh, that's a huge perception
2: right now. Okay. So this is just raw research looking back at the 24 prior periods since 28 that were similar. Okay. Okay. So one month out, on average, the S&P 500 is up. 0.57 percent in the prior 24 similar periods. Three months, the average from this point is a positive return of 1.72. The six-month positive by 2.68, and the one-year-out on average 7.96 percent. Again, I'm just pointing out that the perception, and I know you see it a lot too, just because the market's at a 52-week high doesn't mean it can't go higher.
1: Right. Well, how long have we been hearing that you know, the market is due for a pullback? We've been hearing that for two months, and we haven't gotten one.
2: Yeah. You know, and, 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 the, I,
1: and the more I think people continue to talk about it and say that it's due for a pullback, it's just
2: it's not going to do it until people stop talking about it. Right? Yeah. It's and, like the inverse. And the best thing I can just throw out there for listeners, and I know I sound like a broken record. Is just because we have a period of consolidation or a small pullback, you know, you have all these people like, that's it. That's this is going to be the, the next 07. This is the yeah. next 08. And, you know, um, or the people that say, Mark, well, when it dips 3%, I'm going to buy it. That's when I'm going to buy it. And it dips 3%. And what happens on average? It's the end. I the end can't is buy. near. <laughs> I'll buy when it recovers. Yeah. You know, so, again, we're talking about some of the psychology side of it. So I just wanted to provide some raw research for listeners. Yeah. Just to give them perspective in 24 similar periods of time going back to 28.
1: Yeah. And again, those are averages. It's been up and it's been down over those periods. Sure. Depending sure. on what year you look at. But, yeah, that's, you know, that's a that's a good good number or good numbers for people to, to look at and kind of maybe ease their fears that, you know, this doesn't have to end in a 10% correction yeah, type of thing. Yeah, just throwing it out there. Just, again, just quoting some statistics just to give perspective. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I'll turn That's it good. back to you, Mark. Um, so I have a quote from a blog called The Retirement Field Guide by Ashby Daniels, and this was from January 8th. Um, so again, I'll provide the link to this article uh, in the show notes so that you can read this blog post if you'd like. So Ashby says, watching the news does not make us educated investors. It provides the feeling of knowing what's going to happen next, which may be more dangerous than anything else, because nobody knows. Despite the forecasts already being presented for 2020, nobody knows what's going to happen this year either. Be prudent. Be sure your portfolio is aligned with your needs and goals and lean on the faith that everything will work out we can't do anything more than that. So I thought that was pretty good. That was was very good. Just because again, we get so caught up in the news cycles and worried about what changes we need to be making. Um, But, you know, as me and you have pointed out many times before, no one
2: can predict the future. That's right. I mean, again, you know, when generally speaking, when you and I are making a purchase decision, I'm just going to pick on a stock as an example you know, we're looking out 12 to 18 months, right? And I think trying to uh, make investment decisions on a very short term basis is a risky proposition. And I just know that you and I feel a lot more comfortable having a longer term time horizon and making these decisions. And I think watching the headlines could make the average investor more apt to make a rash decision that is short-term focused yeah and i guess Uh, that's the point i want to make
1: yeah my favorite part of that was the very first sentence
2: that ashby said watching the news does not make us educated investors oh my favorite I, i agree with that my favorite is when the whole iran thing happened every all of a sudden everyone became a middle east policy expert yeah instantly yeah
1: so yeah. Interesting. But a good article there by Ashby. So go ahead and check his stuff out if you haven't already. The next one, Matt, I thought this would be kind of fun to do. This was an article from ThinkAdvisor on December 11th um, in 2019 by Michael Fisher. And this article listed out the top 10 most searched financial topics of 2019 on Investopedia. Okay, this will okay. be this will be fun. Okay, go. So I thought it'd be interesting to go through some of them and just kind of get your thoughts on them. Oh, this is going to be fun. All right. I'm in. So number 10 was ESG, or Environmental,
2: Social, and Governance Investing. What's your take on that? It's a fad, in my view, right now. It's popular. Um, I think it's a way, because you've had so much fee compression on the index side, this is a way for them to juice up their fees and cloak it in the fact that they're trying to invest in a more sociably responsible way. Right. And and so for me, I, I'm not interested in this. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that,
1: you know, if you really dig deep enough, you can find problems with any company. Absolutely. So it's like, where do you draw the line? Right. Yeah. And yeah. then eventually you got to think about your own, you know the performance of your own accounts. Yeah, you know? yeah,
2: I think there's nothing wrong at the at the uh, at the beginning of the day to sit there and say, I don't want to invest in X, Y, Z. Yeah. Right. Example. I totally agree. Alcohol, with that. tobacco. All right. List those things. And then from there, it's free game. Yeah. Um, so that's just my two cents. So yeah. interesting, though, it hit number 10. Yeah. Number 10. Yeah. You're going to see more. I My two cents is it's a it's a way for some of these money managers to try to juice their fees because of fee compression. Yeah. At, maybe. That's a good point. My my two cents. Not really talked about either. I didn't even think of that. Number
1: nine was inverted yield curve. So again, this is often viewed as a sign of an upcoming recession when short term government bonds are paying more than long term government bonds, signaling essentially that
2: there's more risk in the short term than the long term. So when we first started the podcast uh, last year, the inverted yield curve was definitely a big topic and historically it was one of those signals that would uh, signal a recession right in the future so i'm not surprised it 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 was a popular search term because most people saw the news clip and but didn't know what it what it meant yeah
1: and a lot of people i think were under the impression that once it inverts then boom we're going to be in recession the next month where actually it's it's delayed. On average, don't quote me on this, but it's like 18 14 months. to 18 months yeah, I was like out, 12 to 18. I think, yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah. Um, okay, number five, negative bond yields. <laughs> so as of the writing of this article, there's more than $17 trillion of negative yielding debt around the world, with 30% of all investment-grade debt now yielding below 0%. So literally meaning that investors are acquiring these bonds, knowing that they're going to lose money if they hold on to
2: maturity. Why is this happening? Deflation, baby. I mean, at the end of the day, in these developed countries, you do not have economic growth right now in the European Union. You know, people feel that um, if they wait to buy something, it's going to get cheaper. I'm talking big purchases like real estate companies, you know, and it's a vicious cycle you know they over there have uh, poured so much liquidity into their system it has not caused any sort of economic activity europe is not in a good spot and having negative interest rates is not going to help the scenario the situation that's why we highlighted um i think it was about 10 podcasts ago denmark made the decision to go back to positive interest rates that it was actually doing the opposite of what they were trying to do which was to spur economic activity so, um, you know, as a, a professional money manager, I am not going to be purchasing any negative yielding bonds in my career. I'm not doing it. Well, that it's just like to me I just can't wrap my head around it, right? You're just on it. the
1: the very simple level of locking in losses, knowingly locking in losses. I'm not doing it. It just doesn't yeah. doesn't make sense to me. Number four was conventional mortgage. This one kind of surprised me. So interesting. Yeah. So obviously a conventional mortgage is just a mortgage that's not secured by the government. Um, and it's kind of actually maybe it is not that surprising to me that this was in here given how low interest rates have been. And people were trying to figure out how they could save a little money or refi a house and they can do it by you know a conventional mortgage. So maybe that was in there. Yeah, I don't know. That's interesting. So, conventional mortgage came in at number four. Okay, number three is FIRE. Have you heard of this, Matt? I this, have not okay. So, FIRE or it stands for Financially Independent Retire Early. Okay. So, this kind of movement, you know, took twenty nineteen by storm from the millennial generation. I think, Matt, and there were a bunch of articles and books out there that promoted strategies for retiring by the age. Of 35 without working nine to five. I, I failed that one. <laughs> I'm older than 35. So what do you think of this?
2: And is this a strategy that most people can undertake? All right. So I'm seeing a trend among uh, millennials that they live, uh, quote unquote, you know, a simpler life, less things, kind of a, a renting uh, kind of lifestyle. They don't want to own. They want to rent. That way they can get rid of it easily. What I think you're going to see over the next decade is as much as the, on average, the millennial generation says, well, I'm not going to do it like my parents did it. They will. And the reason I feel this way is, you know, when you start to have kids living in that 600 square foot apartment, ain't going to cut it. And, um, you know, the analogy I can provide that's best is this. When you get married, Rachel said to me, we are never going to own a minivan <laughs> we had kids well, let me clarify you own a minivan right we now. own a minivan okay <laughs> so i think you're going to see a trend of as the millennials are delaying that next chapter of their life and if they do decide to have a family i think it just increases the chances that they turn more into a consumer a meaning they're going to buy the house they're going to have the minivan or the suv and I just don't think that's going to change. Yeah. Yeah. So going back to this about retiring at 35, um, unless you are in um, the uh, small, small minority of Silicon Valley and you get a startup that happens to to hit it big, this is not realistic. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I, I don't have a problem with people, you know, living a simple life and you know saving a majority of their income. I think that's great. Yeah. Um. I think it's almost like Comparative for me to like, okay, what's the best diet for most people? Well, for most people, they're okay living a simple life and saving 50% of their income. But then there's other people that really enjoy going and getting a latte from Starbucks or going out to dinner on the weekends or spending money on whatever your hobby is. Sure. And I think that, you know, as long as you're enjoying life and you're not, you know, driving yourself crazy by whatever plan you're following, I think it's fine. But again, there is risk there and there's life changes when you hit your thirties. And when you're 35, that I think for most people, they're not going to be retiring by 35,
2: especially if you're having kids. Yeah. And again, you know, some of the comments, I agree with everything you said. I'm generalizing things, stats that I'm seeing, you know, millennials are waiting longer to get married. They are waiting longer to have children. And I think in just, in my opinion, that cycle is just getting delayed ultimately to what we normally would see. Yeah. That's just the point I want to make there. Yeah. Okay. Yep. I know. I agree with that.
1: Number one, which kind of talks about what we talked about with negative bond yields, but negative interest rate was the number one most searched term on Investopedia in 2019. So what does this mean for investors, Matt, and how does that impact them going forward, given we are in a negative interest rate environment right now across the world?
2: Yeah. So I think the biggest concern uh, for investors is over in Europe, there are certain banks that are charging you to keep deposits with them. I'm talking like just like checking savings. And I think for a time in 2019, as the yield curve inverted, there was some fear here in the US that That was going to be next for us. So imagine having $100,000 at XYZ Bank, and they're going to charge you $200, $300 a year to keep that there. And I think that that's where a lot of those searches have come from. Um, Is this going to lead to more people like hoarding cash under their mattress again? Or what, what is this, you know, what it actually caused last year is the demand for $100 bills, I remember reading an article was at pretty much an all time high, because people were starting to do that. But then you have the problem of deflation, right? Mm -hmm. So you know, if you stay in cash, and I'm not saying the American economy has been or is going to be in a deflationary environment. But if you're in a deflationary environment, if you are, you know, taking that cash out of the bank, and putting it under the mattress, quote unquote, well, you got to know going into it, that's a losing proposition with inflation. Right now, you know, so with all that being said, I think that realistically, negative interest rates in the US is not going to happen. And if it does, it's not going to happen anytime soon. Yeah, my two cents. Yeah. And there are other options out there what, (laughs) which I think it's funny that these
1: things are Are termed high yield savings accounts and they're paying like 1.7% per year. (laughs) Like like I have, I opened um, one of those Marcus accounts through uh, Goldman Sachs and it's a, it's a high yield savings account that is (laughs) 1.7%,
0: (laughs) which I think is just kind of funny. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, um, but yeah, there, there are other options out there, but I think that this negative interest rate world and negative yield world that we're living in is just kind of, kind of mind boggling to me right now but anyways okay so let's move on to the financial planning topic of the week and this one comes from an article on think advisor by william burns and robert bloink titled skip the cash gift try a kitty Roth IRA for the holidays. And I know I'm a little late on this one, Matt. That's all right. Since we're past the holiday season, but we always uh, seem to get the question, what is the best way that I can help my child or grandchild save? And I think a Roth IRA is a phenomenal way to help kids start saving for their future. And at the time, while it might not be appealing two younger kids to get contributions to their Roth IRA for Christmas, I think, um, that they will be thankful that they did down the road when, when they're in the real world. I agree. This is good. Um, so, uh, starting off the article says, while savings bonds, section 529 plan contributions and outright cash gifts, Our popular options, one often overlooked tool for helping the younger generation begin their savings program is the Roth IRA. The Kitty Roth IRA can offer both flexibility and a powerful option for tax-free growth because of the significant amount of time that the funds could potentially be left to grow. Uh, The article goes on to say, many clients overlook the Kitty Roth IRA option for minor children because they believe there are age limits that prohibit contributions for minors. The only restriction on funding even a traditional IRA is that the individual have earned income for the year. In 2019, an individual may contribute the lesser of his or her earned income for the year or $6,000. So there's no age limit on this, Matt. Nope. If you're 16 years old and you're working a summer job at a golf course and you make $4,000, you can contribute $4,000 to a Roth IRA or a traditional IRA. And it doesn't even have to come from you. Your parent can make the contribution. Your grandparent can make the contribution. Your aunt or uncle can make the contribution. Yeah, no, this is great. I love this article. Um, Now, remember, they still have till April 15th to make a prior year contribution. Yeah, exactly. Which, yeah, we should talk about that after after this. So remind me to to, uh, mention that, too. Um, And this limit is the same for 2020. So you can uh, contribute the lesser of number one your earned income for the year or six thousand dollars for 2020 as well. So if a minor child had a summer job or part-time job that generates earned income, that child is eligible to open and contribute to a Kitty Roth IRA. The Kitty Roth IRA is technically established by a minor child's parent or grandparent as a custodial account, with the adult acting as the custodian and the minor as the account holder. So once the funds are transferred into the child's account, the transfer is irrevocable, meaning the funds cannot be tra- or excuse me transferred into another account for another individual. And then once the child is no longer a minor, the funds become his or hers to control. Yep. So you can open the IRA for the kid as long as there's a custodian on the account who essentially, quote unquote, manages the account while the kid is a minor. Yep. And then once the age of majority has been reached, either 18 or 21, depending on whatever state you live in, yep. um, then those funds can be managed by, by the account owner uh, who is the child or no longer a minor child. Um, the article goes on to say, as long as the child has earned income, it doesn't matter where the funds are actually contributed from. Meaning that if the child earns six grand in 2019, a parent or grandparent can fund the Kitty Roth IRA for that child with $6,000 like we mentioned before. Yep. Earned income is any taxable income earned by the child, including traditional W-2 wages from a summer job or even self-employment income earned mowing lawns or babysitting. As long as you're reporting it. As long as you're reporting it. So I think this is a really flexible option for a lot of people that kind of just goes under the radar because people are so concerned with funding the 529s for college and um, just putting money maybe into a, a taxable account for somebody. Um, but I think this is a really good way to, you know, number one, help set someone up for retirement in the future. And number two, do it in a, a tax efficient manner by, you know, having this money be able to grow tax free from when someone is say 15 or 16 years
2: old until they're 65 yeah i mean imagine that i mean you know 45 50 years holy smokes yeah thousand dollars yeah talk about compound interest oh yeah so um why don't you talk about uh the april 15th deadline yes a little bit yeah
1: so with tax season coming up Um, and this is for everyone in general, this isn't just for Kitty Roth IRAs, this is for IRAs, uh, Roth IRAs, for anyone that you have up until your tax filing deadline to make a prior year contribution to your IRA. So if you, let's say, forgot to to max out your traditional IRA, you forgot to put $6,000 in there in 2019, you have up until the tax filing deadline of April 15th, to make that contribution for 2019 so that you can still deduct it on your taxes for the year. Does yep. that
2: makes sense. It does. Anything you want to add? No, I just think that just remember you have to April 15th to maximize your prior year contributions. The only point I wanted to make. Yeah. yeah. And
1: I think I'm I'm a fan of if you can afford to do it, making your IRA contributions in the first week of the new year for that year, just because, again, the time it has to be invested in the market over time. Agreed. So we do have one question from a listener this week, Matt, and this question is from Greg. So Greg asked the question, why do you think companies are splitting their stocks on a less frequent basis?
2: I could take this one. Go ahead. So my opinion is that, Companies are flush with cash, they are buying back their own stock. And we know when they split that increases the outstanding number of shares. And I think that these companies are trying to lower share count. Uh, By lowering share count, I think their perception is that it lowers volatility in that stock compared to if they had a lot more shares that were out there, again, supply and demand, they want to take supply out of the market. So my view is this is uh, because companies are um, utilizing part of their free cash flow to buy back their own stock. And as long as their companies are performing, they feel they don't have to incentivize um, investors to buy shares by splitting the uh, price, which is all psychological in nature. But I think the main reason, in my opinion, and I'll turn it back to you in a second, once again, is companies are buying back their own stock, they want a lower share count. Do you have any comments? Yeah, I just think
1: that that the companies don't need the capital right now. Yeah. I mean, does that make sense? It does. I, I, I They're flush with cash. Yeah, yeah. I don't think that, that they really have a reason right now. I mean, we just got tax cuts a couple of years ago, and I don't think, you know people or companies need need the capital or the cash
2: as much as they once once did. Yeah, and the um, performance of stocks has been good. I mean, I think sometimes they're um I won't give specifics, I'll to give a, a fictitious stock. Every time that stock gets near around hundred, it usually splits and, you know, the stock gets near a hundred and, you know, people don't buy as much of it, the stock remains kind of stagnant and the management's like, Well, you know, I'm I'm paid upon stock performance. Let's cut that stock price and it's all psychological. Yeah. With stocks performing, companies are flush with cash, buying back their own shares. I just don't see as much of it. Yeah, yeah, I just don't think uh, don't think companies
1: need that um, right now. And yep, I, and, you know, I yep. think it's good. Good simple, question, simple though. Greg. That. We, we yeah. appreciate the questions. Simple as that. Uh, anything else in your
2: head that you wanted to talk about, Matt? Before we wrap up here? Nope. Uh, next week, got a lot of earnings. Got a lot of earnings the week after. Um, No, I think we're going to be recording next Thursday. So I think we're good to go. Okay. Well, thanks everybody for
1: tuning in to the 29th episode of the Independent Advisors podcast. Hope you all have a wonderful weekend and we will see you next week. Take care, everyone.
0: Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com, and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.